church father Tertullian once famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We're looking this semester at how in Acts, Christianity is pictured as this unstoppable force marching its way through the Roman Empire, completely transforming, turning the world upside down from the social, political, spiritual, economic landscape of the entire climate. Uh, Another um, commentary from Willimon said, so many Christians and Jesus died at the hands of the empire because it was impossible to reconcile that Christian claim that God, not nations, rule the world. That God, not nations, rules the world And he says those were difficult for a progressive world empire. And the same is actually true today. When Christianity is truly preached, people suffer for it. They do. People die for this faith, for these claims. But those deaths end up being the very impetus of the explosion of the church. And so to some, it's such an offensive message. It's a maddening message. Yet to others, it is overwhelmingly compelling. And you have both of those responses in this text. To our ears, this story seems crazy. Like it seems crazy to think. But I would say today, Stephen's executors might be written off as being mentally unbalanced religious fanatics who just lost it with this guy. They don't know how to respect the rights of a pluralistic society. That may be the way these men are described today. But, you know, Stephen put them on the defensive. He called them out. And so what if it was deeper than that? What if instead of being religious fanatics, what if Stephen's speech, his sermon went straight to their hearts, to the life center of these people, and they felt threatened by him, this man full of grace and truth? That's what I think happened. And so what I want to look at is under kind of these three headings, the accusation, the response, and then the result. The accusation, verses 11 through 14, show us the reason why these people were so angry. The accusation was based on two things, what was happening and then what was being said. First, it says that many priests were being converted during that time. Did you catch that part of the text? Many priests were being converted. Why the priests? Interestingly, in verses 1 through 6, we find the early church dealing with the problem of the poor among them. The apostles have these other priorities to attend to. And so they basically elect these men, these specific men, to take on the role of caregivers instead. Stephen uh, is one. Philip is another. A guy named Parmenas. uh, A guy named Timon, who was a local meerkat in the area. (laughs) And so these men take on this role of caring for the poor, right? And so here's what's important, though. In the Old Testament, the role of caring for the poor was left to who? The priests. That was their job. The priests were to care for the poor. It, it could have been that the priest seeing these Christians now caring for those in need around them was the very thing that compelled them to this faith. It convicted them right down to their hearts because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. In other words, these men saw, the priests saw in the Christians an authentic priesthood. This is an important kind of idea, the priesthood. And that's what I want to kind of weave through this sermon. So what what is a priest? a priest? A priest is someone who would go to God for you. Right? A priest is someone who would represent you to God. A prophet was one who spoke 
from God to you. A priest is someone who spoke to God from you. And so they had this very specific role. And up until a few hundred years ago, most people understood this idea that you can't go to God on your own. You can't just go to him. You had to go through someone else, someone else who was better than you. Someone else who had a better record than you, a better standing than you, who was good enough or at least better than you to get in and have access to God. And so before you kind of write this off as like old school, archaic way, churchy language way of thinking, I want you to think about the many different ways we see priesthood in our lives day by day. I would even say on the college campus, we see priesthood on display more than you might realize. Let me think with you a couple of different things, because think about the many different ways that we feel that we're not good enough to get in unless we get in through someone else. And someone else represents us in a particular group. Okay? Think about different groups. You Even being in the university, like how did you get here? Many of you came through um, scholarships that you had, through some connection that you had maybe. Um, some of your connection to the university is how you applied in the first place. It's, it's your access into certain clubs and programs and opportunities. Why are you on the intramural team you're on? Because someone invited you. They said you were good enough to be with them on their team. You had access through someone else. Student government can even work this way. You get a certain position because you're nominated or you're appointed by someone with more experience or a certain standing. Think about tickets to football games. Uh, Have you ever been in one of those like really special suites upstairs? Like one of those like glass bought me yeah, me neither uh, because because you have to have access you, you have to have access you come in through a card that is specifically attached to someone's ipte level that i don't and i don't know those people so you have to have access to get into those incredible suites i can't even get into fike unless i have my cuid we understand access right you get in through something else and through someone else. I really can't think of a better example of this on the college campus than the Greek system. And I say this, I'm not making fun of the Greek system. I was in a fraternity and I just think it, it shows it so well. Some of you who've been through Rush get this. Some of you girls who've been through Rush. When you go through Rush, how do you get into the house? Someone has to come out and get you. Someone has to come out and they literally have to bring you in. Why? They're your representative. They are acting as a priest for you in order for you to come in. I remember being on the other side of this as a brother in a fraternity and and those nights after rush parties when we would have these conversations and you would find yourself representing someone that you met, defending them or trying to talk about why they may be a good fit in your group. You're acting as a priest. Think about all the places that you're trying to get into now. What circles of influence would you give everything to have? What relationship would you basically sell your soul in order to be in? Because whatever you do in order to make yourself acceptable to some sort of inner ring, to use C.S. Lewis's term, that is functioning as your priest. In other words, your priest is your good looks. Or your priest is your charm or your personality. It's your athletic ability. It's your coolness or your GPA. These are the passes you use to get access, to get in, to the life you want, to acceptability, to dignity in in your own mind. And then they become false covers for security. 
and meaning and purpose. So here are these priests and they're watching these Christians do their jobs better than them and they get converted. So many of them. Why? Because they see authenticity for the first time. In other words, you can only live with your insecurities and your little priests that you make for yourself for so long. Until you see someone who seems to have their priest outside of themselves. Who isn't always trying to get in. Who knows who they really are and that is incredibly attractive. You ever come across those people? They're not trying. It's incredibly attractive. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's infuriating here to the religious establishment because of their priesthood is being threatened. Their way of thinking about acceptability is on the rocks. And so it comes out in these two basically exaggerated, if not false, claims against Stephen specifically. Um, One is the temple and the other is the law. Very briefly, why those two things specifically? For these Jewish leaders, they thought that they were acceptable to God because they had the temple and they had the law. They had the temple. The temple was where God was. He was accessible to them. You had to go through them to get to him. He was manageable and he was present. Second, they thought they had access to God because they had the law. They had the Torah. That was their set of special codes that defined who was in and who was out. So it included dress code and how you spend your time and how you should talk and what you should do with your money and all these things. The the Torah really was their kind of grid for reality. And so in chapter 7, we get this long recorded, the longest recorded sermon in the whole book. But what Stephen is challenging, he doesn't really get at the law and the temple, which is what the charges were against. He gets at the heart issue underneath those charges. Very beautifully. In other words, in other words, Stephen starts to do what a priest, what a priest does. He starts to expose them and get them ready to meet God. Don't miss this. He becomes a priest for them in that sermon. And as brutal as that confrontation sounds, Stephen is being a priest for them. And so the first thing he talks about in his sermon is basically that the temple cannot contain God. He's so much bigger than that. The long history he details goes through the life of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David, all for the purpose of saying that by elevating the temple, they had localized God. They had put God in a box. They had made him manageable. Stephen says, God isn't in this box manageable. Now God is with his people. Could we be guilty of localizing God to what feels more manageable to us? To make God sound safe. Um, The line is played out, but it's so good, right? When Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, safe, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That, that line is so good because that's so often how we want to treat God, too. We want to make him safe. We want to make him manageable and to fit in this kind of box. But God has always been on the move, and he's challenging every assumption made about him that's apart from his word. From Abraham, Moses, David, through Solomon, all of this history shows that God is not to be manipulated. God can't be managed. And so the ultimate blasphemy is to try to mold God into an image that feels safe 
or safer to you, making God like you on your own terms. And so Stephen is saying that God is not localized to a place he is accessed. He is not accessed through little p priests. Those men were pointing to a greater priest who was to come. And so we have access to God, of course, through Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And he isn't safe, but he's good. And he alone is our access. Secondly, Stephen does address the law. And that's where it gets really tense in the passage that we read. When he said, you who received the law as delivered by angels, you didn't even keep it. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you have found a code of conduct that keeps the the good people in according to you and the bad people out, but you're not even living according to your own code of conduct. You have a standard that you're measuring everyone by, but you don't even live up to your own standard. Let me illustrate it this way. I heard years ago, and I just don't want this to be true, but I think it's true. I heard years ago that the things that bother you most when you're driving in your car, like the road rage things, are actually the things that you do the most to other people. And I cannot get that out of my head. It messes with me so much when somebody slams on the brakes in front of me and turns without a blinker. A blinker, like you have a blinker. <laughs> and they do that. And, and, and I get so mad. I, I was on my way home from uh, RUF back in Huntsville. And there was a, a, one of our students lived in the neighborhood right next to ours. And, and he called me right after he got home. And he said, do you know you never use your blinker ever? Like you never use your blinker. And I was like, That's ex- like that, that saying is so true. I felt it today. Here's two examples from today while we're talking about it. I went, I was going, I went to Fike this afternoon and, uh, and I, was, I was pulling in to the parallel spots. I've got a green parking sticker, so I got to use the little parallel spots on the road right there beside Fike. And, but I was on the phone. I was that guy. And so I'm trying to parallel park while I'm on the phone. You know that guy? I can't stand that guy. <laughs> I get so mad at that guy. And I'm just like, slow, like, yeah, hang on. And cars are backed up right there. I'm like, hey, just hang on. And I park. And, and then it just hits me like, I can't stand that guy. How often do we have standards for other people that we don't even live up to? One more example from Fike. Um, not that I was thinking about the sermon or anything, but it just, it was there. I was leaving Fike. And you know those people that you're just like walking behind them when they're on their phone, they're like texting and they walk so slow and you can't get around them. So I was walking out of Fike and I was texting and I was going down the stairs so slowly, just, I was caught up in something. And what I actually, I was, I was trying to um, text Beth Miller and I accidentally FaceTimed Beth Miller. And so, (laughs) and so I'm walking down the stairs, people are trying to come out behind me, everybody's sweaty. And I'm like trying to stop the FaceTime. Sorry, Beth. And I couldn't stop it. And everybody's trying to pass me. I'm annoying it. I can't stand that guy. That guy who's like messing up on his phone and causing all these problems when I'm trying to get somewhere. Okay, you get the point, right? So we have impossible standards that we hold others to in all sorts of ways, socially, morally, spiritually. But we don't even hold to those standards ourselves. That's part of Stephen's point here. That's what's going on with Stephen's soon-to-be murderers. They have standards that they're trying to hold others to that they don't even hold themselves to. And so Stephen calls them out on their double standard. But amazingly, he doesn't leave them there. Don't miss this. Don't miss how Stephen 
right in the middle of his rebuking these religious leaders, he also brings them to Jesus. Like a priest. Did you notice how he refers to Jesus as the righteous one? In other words, he's the only one who really could represent you. He's the only one who could really be the temple for you. He's the only one who can be the ultimate priest for you, who fulfilled the law for you. These standards that you hold others to that you can't even keep yourself. God has a much higher standard that he kept himself in the person of Jesus. He's telling them, you've cut off the very one that you needed most. In fact, you killed him. And then what do they do? They picked up stones to stone him too. Luke writes, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed at him together. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. You may know that the word martyr is simply the Greek word for witness. Witness. And in this moment, Stephen is a witness for the grace of God, for power-grabbing fanatics who felt like someone who, someone who talked about grace and forgiveness and love, who felt like someone like that was a threat to their power. He was a witness who died like his master against false charges of blasphemy and who even died praying for his enemies like his master. I want to tell you the story of another martyr I learned about this summer who lived not so long ago, who was killed actually not far from here. Uh, I learned of Pastor George from Karen Ellis. Karen Ellis is a terrific speaker and author who, um, she's in my denomination, who speaks on human rights and race relations and all sorts of really important topics. And she shares the story of George, who was the slave pastor over his flock throughout the plantations in various areas of South Carolina during the 1800s. And during that time, states, as you know, restricted the ability of slaves to travel And those in power would charge them with massive violations if they went against these regulations. Often it was punishment with lashes on their bare backs or worse. Ellis, Karen Ellis, who is a descendant of slaves herself, she said, So the African-American preacher repeatedly endured flogging in order to tend to his flock repeatedly endured flogging in order to tend to his flock. And so in 1836, a slave preacher named George was told to stop preaching or suffer the consequences for his crime of preaching Christ and baptizing and shepherding his people. But he wouldn't stop. He would not stop. And so George was burned alive within one mile of the courthouse in Greenville, South Carolina. And what those in power did is they made sure that every slave on every plantation within 20 miles of the courthouse were forced to come and watch George die, which would include most everyone in his congregation, so that they would see that disobedience to their power came at a real cost. Another martyr witnessing 
to the Christ who died for him. It makes me wonder, and I really, I, I struggle with this this week, if I'm honest. It made me wonder this question. Is anything that I'm living for also worth dying for? Anything. Is anything that I'm living for actually worth dying for? Think about all the things that you're living for right now. The positions, the particular circle of friends, the paycheck. Is anything that I'm living for actually worth dying for? All the striving, all the stress, all the headaches and frustrations, is any of that actually worth dying for? In many ways, if we're honest, if we're honest, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of that Pastor George story. What I mean by that is those with all the privilege and power felt threatened because someone was full of grace and truth. And they would do whatever it took to keep their positions, even at a cost of someone else's life. But those who knew they had everything to gain, people like George and people like Stephen and so many other Christians throughout history, they were able to give up everything for the sake of Christ. If you look back at our text, what happened as a result of this death? It's amazing what happens as a result of this death. In Stephen's case, the greatest missionary surge of the Christian faith was launched at this very moment, the moment Stephen died. Because it's at this moment, at the end of this passage, that Christians begin to spread out because of fear of persecution. And so they spread from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Just as Jesus told them that they would. But it is through persecution and even death that he sends them out. And then to the ends of the earth. That's this moment. Because what man meant for evil, God intended for good, for the salvation of many. It's been the theme of the scriptures all the way up until this point. It's still the theme today because Christ is victorious, even in death. And as we come to see very, very soon, another character is introduced. You saw his name twice. The man whose feet received the clothes of Stephen. The man who stood there at the beginning of chapter 8 and approved of this execution, Saul. And just wait to see what God does through that guy. That's our next message here in a couple weeks. But what lessons are we supposed to learn from this? What, what can we take away from texts like this? Stephen is an extraordinary man. What power and what confidence and what poise. How did he do it? How did he do that? Well, the end of the story tells us. Verse 56 says that Stephen's dying vision is of Jesus being his priest for him. Did you catch it? Stephen looks into heaven. and What does he see? Jesus standing, welcoming him in. His representative bringing him in. As Les puts it, Stephen knows that at the same time the earthly court is condemning him. The heavenly court is commending him. In other words, the earthly court dismisses him. But the heavenly court welcomes him. 
He had the smile of his king. And at, at that moment of his death, the verdict there at the throne of God became so real and overwhelming to him that the verdict here on earth became inconsequential. Stephen is acting like a priest to those who hated him only because he is focused on the priest who has loved him even to the point of death. 6.8 says that Stephen was a man full of grace and power. Aren't those contradictory terms? If you think about it, grace and power. We think of grace as kind of the weak, meek, quiet, and power, loud, strong, right? Grace and power in one person. So why? This is Tim Keller. Here's how he worked it out. He said, Stephen has the spirit of Christ who is both lion and lamb. Only the gospel can produce that sort of humble boldness. This is Keller. He says, why? Because if we're saved by our good works, we can either be bold but not humble because we might be living up to our own standards, bold but not humble, or we can be humble but not bold if we have been failing our standards. But the gospel tells us that we are helpless sinners creating a humility that doesn't go away if you believe it. While at the same time, we are completely accepted in Christ, which creates a boldness that doesn't go away. It produces both grace and power. Stephen learned the secret that's really at the gut of every human being, including me and you. When life goes badly for you, what do you do to console yourself? Where do you turn? The world tells you, Just fix yourself, right? Maybe you need to lose some weight. Work out more. Pick a hobby. Just love the person that you're with. Get wasted. Play Fortnite for the next couple of days. You'll feel feel fine. Like all sorts of things the world will say to use to console yourself. But the truth is, the reason we feel like we need to console ourselves is because we're feeling something that's actually true. That we're unacceptable as we are. We're unacceptable as we are and we turn to all sorts of things to kind of numb that reality. And then we set up our temples in our law. We set up our temples so that we can look like we have everything under control. God is in a box. He approves of me. It's why you're so defensive if someone points out anything wrong with your life. Because you've set up a temple... And you have your standards. And if you're not crushing it, you don't want people to remind you of it. Because you have your temple that you're living in, right? Or we have our own laws. We hold ourselves to lesser, stricter codes than we hold others to. And we judge who's in and who's out. Which is why we're so protective of our little friend groups. Hear me on this. This is why you're so protective of your friend groups. You don't want people disturbing what you've created. You've determined who's in and who's out. We have codes. We have our inner rings. And those are all according to our little laws that we've written for ourselves. But don't you want to have what Stephen has? Don't you want to have his priestly spirit? Well, later in the New Testament, Peter will go on to say that the church is the priesthood of believers. 
The church is the priesthood of believers. This means a couple of different things. It means now we have direct access to God through Jesus, as we mentioned earlier. Through our great high priest, we can be honest with him about our struggles, our doubts, and our fears. He is sympathetic and he's welcoming. But it also means something else. It also means that we have to care about those that God cares about. If you're a Christian and you're part of the priesthood of believers, it changes the way that you love even your enemies. It changes the way that you love the disenfranchised or the way that you care for the poor. If you think you're saved by your works, then you will look down on the poor. You will see them as they got themselves into that situation. They can figure out a way to get themselves out. But if you see that Jesus is your your only priest, you'll become a priest too. Interceding for others. A priestly person is one who's deeply sympathetic and willing to intercede for others. Priests are beautiful people in this sense. Stephen was a beautiful person, the text said. The reason he's beautiful, the reason priests are beautiful is because they're beautiful to God and it changes the way that they treat others. I want to close with three kind of hopefully practical applications as we end. Three ways that a priestly spirit can change you. Um, And they all kind of work together. One, a priestly spirit will cause you to stand down. To stand down. What I mean by that is it produces in us tremendous humility to know that we simply can't come to God on our own terms, on our own standing. We go through someone else who's better than us, better for us, Jesus. And that God has provided the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that we can stand up under in order to have a relationship with God. He's provided only through Jesus. And so our access to the Holy of Holies is totally dependent on someone else's life and someone else's death. There's never anything I can do to accumulate enough worth to say, look, God, I've done it. And so this brings tremendous humility. We stand down before God. We approach God with real humility because we don't come to him on our own record, but we come to him out of weakness and absolute dependency. This is the humble boldness that Keller talked about. That's one. Two, a priestly spirit will cause you to stand in. To stand in. You will advocate for those who are the have-nots in this life. Don't miss the priests were converted because they saw the church caring for the poor among them. Is there even an ounce of that sort of witness in the world today? Is there an ounce of that witness in your church today? In your life? That you would look at the disenfranchised, the hurt among you. And it's not just the poor, financially speaking. It's also the poor in spirit. A priestly spirit stands up for injustices. A priestly spirit stands in for victims. And those who are hurt by the brokenness of this world and the broken systems of our society, priests stand in for those who can't stand up for themselves at times. A priestly spirit listens to the burdens people carry and they come alongside them and they're hurt and they advocate and they plead their case before God and before man. That's what a priestly spirit does. It causes us to stand down, to stand in. And finally, a priestly spirit will cause you to stand out. And I literally mean that you turn out. You stop looking so much at you and how you're doing and what you look like and what everybody thinks about you. 
And you begin to turn out and look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Even in college. And you lead your little friend groups to do the same. I had a, another student at UAH um, who always would go up to circles of people at RUF specifically. Like, so you know your circles, right? You're standing in here before, there's a little circle back there, there's a circle over there, there's a circle over here, and you're all kind of talking to your friend groups. It's fine, you're getting to know people and all of that. And then he would always walk into the middle of the circle and he would say, no, 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 no circles of hate, no circles of hate, horseshoes of happiness. <laughs> I love it. Horseshoes of happiness. Open up the circle. Has your friend group ever been labeled as a clique? There's a reason for that. You're looking in. You're looking in. You're looking in. What would it look like for you to turn out and to begin welcoming others in or going out yourself? Not just welcome them to your thing, to your circle, but actually to go out. It's so easy and natural for that to be the case in college, right? You're making great friends, and and we love it. And I love that you would find great friends even in this room. But there's a point where you find your friend group, and you're like, this, and that's it, and I've got it, and I'm keeping it, and no one's taking this away from me. That's not a priestly spirit. Horseshoes of happiness. Turn out. Stand out. Welcome those on the fringes. That's what priests do because they have been welcomed when they were on the fringes, by a priest who stood in for them, who stood out and welcomed them in, the priest who loved the outsider, even at a cost to himself. That's Jesus, and that's what he's called us to. And that's an invitation for you. If you've never been welcomed in to God, see Jesus standing, saying, come home through him. Would you pray with me?